everyone. Welcome to the Booze and Boobs podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Katrina. Thanks for joining us today as we talk about some of our favorite horror movies. We created this podcast as a way to give women more of a voice in horror. Men dominate most industries, especially film and television. And that also goes for podcasts. We'll focus on female characters, motivations, or just expectations placed on women in horror, even if the situation is happening to a man. We're excited you're here and we hope you love it. Now let's get to today's movie. That's not a hot second. I said hot. I said hot. Which means a few. It was a red Uh, button for me to push record. Hot. I disagree fully. You can't disagree that the button was red. It's North Carolina, 1997. There's a hit and run on the 4th of July. And guess what? I know what you did last summer. Ooh, and the crowd goes apart. (laughs) which is uh which is like uh, it's annoyingly long every chance that rachel and i get to do (laughs) i-k-w-y-d-l-s we do it because it's like (laughs) i hate writing this title out so many times that's okay i mean i'm a i'm a professional swifty so i'm really good at acronyms and abbreviations and stuff like that so like, this all you had to do was stay. We are never, ever getting back together. <laughs> the last great American dynasty. I am surprisingly good at deciphering, like, the acronyms that are, like, in memes and things like that, that I shouldn't know. But I'm like, it's like a, it's like a game for me to figure it out. Like, you better get your ass over here before something like, you know. <laughs> well, there you go. So, yeah, we're talking about I Know What You Did Last Summer from 1997, uh, directed by Jim Gillespie, written by Scream's Kevin Williamson, and starring Jennifer Love Hewitt, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Ryan Philippe, and Freddie Prince Jr., the dream team, right? Basically all 90s high school movies. I mean, you're not wrong. I This was, I think this came out right before Buffy. So Sarah Michelle Gellar, like, hop, skip, jumped into superstardom. <laughs> um, Ryan Phillippe and Sarah Michelle Gellar were in Cruel Intentions. I think that was 99 or something like that. Um, I mean, Freddie Prince Jr., she's all that. Ever like, I mean, just, like, heartthrobs. Yeah, of, like, and then, obviously, Scooby-Doo. Oh, yeah. I'm like, Scooby-Doo was not. I know what you did last summer, <laughs> but I get what you're saying. Duh. Yeah. I've never seen Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but I have seen all the live-action Scooby-Doos, so. Same. I've seen... Oh, see? Um, I've seen the clip of Buffy the Vampire Slayer that Pedro Pascal is in, and I know Michelle Trashenberg was in that show. And... That's it. Maybe we should watch it sometime. I don't Not know if it's today. even streaming on anything. No. Too many things to do today. Yeah. One of which is talk about this movie. So Ooh, should we get it started? Yeah. Um, I will say before we actually start talking about the movie is that Katrina, um, her scene titles are fantastic. Yet again, great job. Um, and she was able to get into the spreadsheet and write down all of her notes for the movie before I did. But when I was reading her notes, I was just like, 
I don't need to write any because hers are so good, but also her commentary in her notes is so good that I might decide to do like a Patreon special and I will just read all of your things because I feel like I could perform (laughs) it very well. It's a good script. I really like the idea of you reading the things that I write and like (laughs) out loud. Hey, well, I mean, you read what I write. Oh, that's true. Yeah. We're, it's just a switcheroo. Yeah. There we go. I was, I was nervous about forgetting things this time because I wasn't as like enthralled about this movie as a few of the others. So I was like extra detailed. I felt in my notes. Cause I was like, I'm going to forget. Well, so. I think that that's the thing too. And, and Katrina and I have discussed this like a tiny bit outside of it is this is a pretty straightforward movie. It's not like sleepaway camp or midsummer or I mean, mm-hmm. really even like the boy or anything where there's a lot of layers to unravel for like this movie to have meaning yeah the is the friendship dynamics are pretty in your face and bold there's no question about any of it well and and so this is what i was gonna say i was waiting until i was recording to be able to say this stuff so katrina and i could have an authentic conversation about it um i mentioned Kevin Williamson wrote Scream and this. Um, And something that maybe other people think this too, but this is just something I was thinking of in reference to us being able to record this since we've covered both movies is where Scream absolutely reignited the horror genre from like the B movies and gore fests and just like little to nothing character dynamics and turn that on its head i feel like when he wrote i know you did last summer which is very very loosely based on a book by lois duncan um i haven't read that um i remember looking at it in the library when i was like 13 and i wasn't going to be allowed to check it out because it was a horror um but the what i feel like kevin williamson did with the i know what you did last summer script is it kind of started what would be the new generation of horror so in my opinion this was i mean and it was huge it you know it was one of the first horror movies to come out after scream so after people saw scream they wanted to watch i know you did last summer and see that but we kind of like began a new formula it's not like the final girl was invented here or whatever but i feel like this is where we really strongly get like you know the the Friendship tropes. I mean, I would say like the five, if we want to include Max in just like the teenage character group mm-hmm. overall. But like, you know, you've got your prom queen, you've got your smart girl, you've got your like good guy, your you've jock. got your jock, and then you've got like guy, the weirdo kid. The yeah, the working class rich guy and yeah, the weirdo kid yeah. who's obsessed with her for no reason. Yeah. So like we we've, we've got all these things. It's very formulaic. Um but if you haven't seen I know what you did last summer, spoilers the whole time. But at the same time, I did read and I don't know if this is necessarily true, but that um he wrote I say he cuz I don't know the writer's name. Kevin Williamson. I, Kevin Williamson wrote this movie before he wrote scream but scream was released first and then i know what you did last summer was I able think, to come out afterwards i think you're right is that he had started with this and then wrote scream 
which was initially titled Scary Movie. Mm-hmm. But then the title got changed to Scream and now we have a scary movie franchise that's takes a lot. The first movie takes a lot from I Know What You Did Last Summer and Scream. So this is the first R-rated movie that I ever saw by myself. Um, There's no way in hell I would have ever been allowed to watch it, but I was 12, I think, and... I had a TV in my bedroom and like, I didn't even know it was on. I don't even know how I stumbled upon this, but then all of a sudden I was hooked and I was like laying at the foot of my bed, like with my blankets on, like the TV turned on really, really low with the captions on so I could watch Mm -hmm. it. And this movie gave me a spook (laughs) and I was hooked. Like this movie, like really, really turned me on to horror. And I know it's formulaic and I know it's like not scream or anything like that, but like it's nostalgic I think it's well done and I love it. So I don't yeah. love that my older brother told my mom that I watched this movie and got me in trouble for watching an R-rated movie. Niches get stitches. Okay, well, he's 10 years older than me and he's tall. So listen, like, he would beat me up. My, listen, see, you did the youngest child role incorrectly then because what I did was I blackmailed my sisters with information that I knew because I wasn't going to get in trouble for them sneaking out at night, but I would get in trouble for getting my, for not cleaning my room. So I would say, Hey, Danny, clean my room. And she said, no. And I said, do you want me to tell them what you did? And she goes, okay. But my brother was 10 years older than me. So like me being 12, he was literally a full grown adult. What, what could I have some dirt on him? You you could have blackmailed him. You didn't try hard enough. You didn't dig deep enough for dirt. I think that we were just not close as Well, Danny was six years older. People. Yeah, That's Danny is six years. But my oldest sister is ten years older than me. Well, I just but she wasn't in earlier today. Yeah. Every week, like every Friday-ish, me, my brother, and his kids, and my grandma go to lunch because I work from mm-hmm. home. Um. And then we were talking today and I said, my grandma was like, what's the plane? Where are we going to go this week? And I said, Chinese. And my brother asked like about, depending on like what place. And I said, what do you want? And then he, referring to like, out of the Chinese options, what do you prefer? Mm -hmm. And then do you know what he said? He said, Mexican. I was like, that's not what I asked you at all. Yeah. You got to be real specific with your questions. He's so dumb. Siblings are tough. But, um, well, we've done what we always do and uh, talk too much. Every fucking time we try and record something, we're like, what are we, what can we do to like trim this stuff out? We're like, we just can't shut up. Okay. Let's, let's just get this going. We open up. I know what you did last summer with a beautiful shot of the waves of the ocean crashing into the rocky shore. Um, the rock version of Summer Breeze playing in the background very lightly, which I may or may not disagree with. You'll never know. Um, Too late, it already happened. It, exactly. They didn't ask me because I was three when this when this came out. As we're going along, we see a long winding road, and then it ends up focusing on a man very precariously sitting on the edge of a cliff. Drinking some alcohol, wearing like fishing waiter, like waiters and some mm-hmm. rubber boots. Could not be me because I am terrified of heights and I trust nothing 
on the edge of a cliff to not fall into the ocean or whatever is below. Also, inebriated. Couldn't couldn't do that. But he looks young and has this like silver pendant thing that spins. I don't know what it is. It's a silver pendant thing for me. But it looks uh, sentimental. And then we see fireworks erupting in the distance. And we go to the 4th of July Croker Festival. I'm assuming croaker is a fish. Like I said, I'm from Kansas. I know nothing about ocean fish or the ocean. But it's pretty obvious that it's like a small fishing town. Yeah, it's Southport, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just thought they called it like the croaker festival. Like, you know how we have like Tiblo days and stuff? Oh, well, I mean, she's croaker made. queen. I, You know what? I'm going to look and see if it's fish. It's the 4th of, 4th of July celebration for Southport. Uh, why did you make that face? I don't like fish, and it's the Atlantic croaker is um, an ugly fish. That's all I'm saying. Oh, but it is a fish. At least you were right about something. Good for you. And we go to a pageant, and we see Sarah Michelle Geller, who plays Helen Shivers. She does her little interview thing, and the question... I don't even remember what the question was. I, I don't think they ever, like, show... I don't know if they even showed the question, but she basically was like, I'm going to be an actress and serve my country through the art of expression. But yeah, because th- that's where we learned she wants to move to New York to be a serious actress. Uh, on the loft, watching Helen's crowning, because she wins, because she's Sharon Michelle Geller and she should win everything. But up on the loft, we have Barry, played by Ryan Philippe, Ray... Freddie Prince Jr. and Julie Jennifer Love Hewitt. So they are watching Helen win, and we're just getting a little bit of the dynamic that they've just graduated high school. They're good friends, but this is where kind of like the tropiness comes in, and we're learning. You know, Julie's a smart girl. Helen's the pageant queen. Barry is the jock, and Ray is like the strong silent type so there's the two couples barry and helen and julie and ray and then after the pageant we go to the town party like the festival celebration carnival type thing julie and helen are helen and julie are walking through uh helen is wearing her crown she's very excited about it and people are congratulating her and helen makes a comment about uh how's her hair because the hair is everything. She's got really long, beautiful hair. Um, it's styled, you know, has all the volume and like the loose curls at the end, very 90s. And she says something that it's all about the hair. Uh, pay attention because that's important. And then what happens is we see Max, played by Johnny Galecki, who comes up to Julie, uh, offers her a shot, and then kind of aggressively in my opinion, is trying to get her to go out with him. And she says that she's with Ray. And he's just, he's spinning it like, you know, it's our last year. We're about to go off to college or whatever. You know, go out with me. And then Barry comes up and kind of like protects Julie a little bit. And I I liked that from Barry. Barry doesn't have a ton of redeeming qualities other than being played by Ryan Philippe. Um but I thought that that was nice. A little bit of, like, protection. He's very macho and demeans Max while he does it. But, I, I don't know. I kind of like I it. Dis- I disagree fully. With what? 
I hate Barry and everything that he is in this movie. Um, I literally just said he doesn't have a lot of redeemable qualities. What are you talking about? Oh, I mean, I don't agree. He literally assaults so many people in this movie for nothing. He's so aggressive without even thinking about anything. Like, he just is like, he acts on everything before even considering all of the other possibilities that could be happening. He could have been like, hey, man, that's not fucking cool. Get the fuck away. Okay, but Barry obviously doesn't have any real kind of emotional intelligence and through the events of the movie. I mean, you're absolutely right. He's completely a spitfire, acts first, doesn't think. But I feel like that's the the trope and the formula that's being set up. I, I think he plays that part very well. I just don't condone it because it's just one of those like i'm a man i'm gonna do what i want because i can well and i think that that's a really good point i think that that's some of the contention between the characters of barry and ray whereas well freddie prince jr is like what six two or something and ryan philippe is like five ten so there's definitely you know some imbalance there i remember even seeing something for like a special feature or whatever that during a scene later they had to like kind of physically manipulate the shot to make it look like ryan Philippe and freddie prince jr were a little bit more balanced for like a physical altercation and things mm-hmm. like that and it's not like freddie prince jr is ripped like he's kind of normal but he's just like yeah. a bigger dude yeah and and so and it's just that short man syndrome he's under six foot it's tough so yeah but yeah he he shoves max and ray has to break it up being like bro what like what are you doing um and then helen suggests that they go down to dawson's beach like let's just get away from everybody because it's a really crowded like i think they're at, like the pier there's like a live band going on like it's a big celebration and i'm like i would agree with helen like i don't want to be around all these people well, they're going to Dawson's Beach for a different reason, because they're teenagers. Um, right. And here's the part where I mentioned that Kevin Williamson also wrote for Dawson's Creek. So there's a little Easter egg for you. So <laughs> we go to uh, what Katrina has titled Sex on the Beach. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we cut to uh, the four kids, Julie, Ray, uh, Helen and Barry sitting around a, a little bonfire that they made and they're all telling their version of an urban legend. So, you know, somebody's got a hook for a hand. Somebody stalks a group of teenagers. Um, you know, someone, um, the ghost like resurrected and killing for revenge. Am I missing anything? Like one's hanging with like dripping on the car. Like, and it it's just every single one of them have a, has a different story. Yeah. And then there's basically. somebody who has like a hook for a hand and like they're kind of telling it like a ghost story, but then they're also like, no, here's how the version goes. So mm-hmm. it's it's a really, you know, smart setup when you think about it creatively to to then incorporate a lot of these elements from these folk tales into the rest of the plot of the movie and that's what ray says is that you know it's not just a made-up story you know all of these urban legends kind of come from a place where something happened that was real and julie kind of laughs and she's like this is just like something people made up to warn girls about having premarital sex and i was raised religious so i'm like yeah that's pretty much all that 
anybody in the church cares about is whatever girls are doing. They don't care about yeah. the boys, but it's purity culture. It's so, I mean, I just think that that's something that's really interesting. And the older I get, yeah. you know, seeing that in other avenues. Uh, a little bit later when Ray and Julie are talking about it uh, separately, she even mentions like the hook is such a phallic symbol. Like even that she's trying, she really sh- shines as the intellectual of the group with all of her lines. The virgin. So the couple's kind of split up. Helen and Barry are talking about their plans after high school and just kind of like being trying to be cute and fun about it. And they're making out by the boat. Ray and Julie walk off to a different section or talking about missing each other. And then Ray goes, you can give up Boston. Um, No, she can't. How come you can't give up New York? Again, idiots. Anyway. Julie says, I'm afraid you're going to fall in love with someone with, like, shaved head and tattoos and piercings. Okay, Anne. And then the worst thing of all happens. This whole movie, this is the worst part. Ray says that high school sweethearts have, like, the highest rate of success. And Julie tells him to cite your source. And he points to his chest. I gagged. He points to his heart. He has no heart. He's Freddie Prince Jr. He has everybody. He has has his own heart and he has everybody else's heart from the late 90s. I And early 2000s with Scooby-Doo. I disagree. That line came from his penis, not his heart. (laughs) Rachel is currently dying. I said that with you thinking a dream. I did I'd like to go on record and say that it's not like it was that funny. It was just that moment. <laughs> no, it wasn't that funny. Um, it was well fight, but it wasn't that funny. Yeah, so obviously the line worked. And um, I will say that Ray is a, is a gentleman and asked, double-checked for consent and said, are you sure? So, so everybody's getting laid. Yep. Because what is Kevin Williamson's number one rule for horror movies? Oh. You can never have sex. Virgins die. Vir- no, virgins don't die. Oh, virgins don't die. You can never have never. sex. I'd rather die. But um, So I'm just going to say that um, Barry and Helen had sex. And look what happened to them. So, mm-mm-mm. But- stereotypical of them to kill off the blondes. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta go uh, lock on my doors. <laughs> so we've had our endearing moment a chance for us to relate to the characters and you know find your favorites um and then all the kids are going to leave the beach and go back home barry's too drunk to drive so ray kind of fights with him to get his keys because he'll drive barry puts up a fight and gives his keys up but then he's like no one drives my car but me and we're like okay well you're not driving right now? So, sh- not your car right now. Like, ugh. Right. It's so annoying, because, like, even when he gets in the car, he doesn't stop drinking or talking about he doesn't want someone else to drive his car. Yeah. And the whole group is like, you literally cannot drive right now. Yeah. So, so they try to be responsible. I think that that's also kind of, like, another thing for us to connect to, is that, like, they're good people. They have you know? futures... 
they have plans, they're, you know, semi-responsible. I mean, they're teenagers, they're going to do things. But... Well, yeah, so Ray is driving, Julie's in the front seat, Helen and Barry are kind of making out, and then Barry decides that he's not done, you know, having a good time. So he messes with the radio, turns on, you know, some rock music, then he's standing outside of his sunroof, like, standing up while Ray's driving. He drops his liquor bottle through the sunroof and it falls on Ray. So now he's drenched in liquor and they're all yelling at each other, trying to get Barry down, trying to still drive while it's night. And um, I can't remember if we specifically mentioned this in the beginning, but we're shown um, in like the beginning credit scene with that big drone shot over like the coastline that it's a bunch of like windy cliff roads is where Uh they are. So it's already a little bit more dangerous to drive and, you know, Ray's trying to make sure that everyone gets home safe. However, unfortunately, they see something in the road, but they're not quick enough to be able to miss it. And something hits the car, rolls up, hits Barry, and then Ray, like, stops the car, swerves it around uh, so until they're able to stop. Which I will say... Ray did a pretty good job not panicking going off the freaking edge of the road. Like, he, thank God Barry wasn't driving. <laughs> well, it's also um, kind of one of those things. I absolutely do not condone drunk driving in any way, shape, or form. No. But it's kind of one of those things where, you know, if Barry had driven, how different would that car ride have turned out? Right. So... Or even any of the girls could have driven. Like, I don't know why it had to be Ray, but I, I it was probably like a macho, macho thing. thing. Mm-hmm. Weird. All of the kids get out of the car and Barry is pissed because he has a huge estate in the front of his BMW now. He's got blood on him, but he's like, it's not my blood. So they're trying to find what they hit. Julie comes across a rubber boot, and then they're like, "Oh fuck!" Yeah, because they, and they get the it flashlight here because they didn't see anything. Julie finds yeah. the boot, and then they're they're worried. Yeah, I would be like, "Please, dear God, please don't let me find anything." <laughs> um, no. Unfortunately, Julie spots the body and screams. To alert that everybody. good old Jennifer Love Hewitt scream, like it's a good one, and it got her. Um, so uh, I don't know if it was specifically around like this time, like when they were filming this movie, but in the late nineties, um, Will Friedle from Boy Meets World and Jennifer Love Hewitt dated, and she did a cameo on my favorite episode of Boy Meets World, um, where she plays Jennifer Love Pfefferman, and the episode is kind of a scream ripoff. And they mention Nev Campbell, but I think it's funny that Jennifer Love Hewitt is the cameo in it. Oh. And um, there's just like a little line in that episode. Um, the phone rings, Jennifer Love Hewitt screams, and then the character Angela, she screams like at her with an attitude. And Jennifer is like, I'm sorry. And she's like, yes, girl, I am the screamer around here. <laughs> and so it's it's wonderful television but i'm just saying jennifer love hewitt she's got that horror girl scream she's fantastic everybody now is talking about what should happen next julie has the correct answer which is um call the police 
get an ambulance, have a doctor check if he's dead because Ray checked his pulse and said he didn't feel anything, but I'm pretty sure none of them have had any medical training. Then it goes to Ray was driving. It's going to look like manslaughter or reckless driving on him. No one's going to believe that Ray was actually driving because Barry is drunk. Ray smells like alcohol because he dropped it. Truly everybody in this situation other than Julie is being selfish. Helen is just kind of going with whatever happens. She doesn't really have a... She says, I think, that we should call the police and you're not a doctor, but she doesn't really push for her opinion. It's a hard conversation. I mean, because there is the truth that it was an accident, but they're all nervous about their reputations and the consequences and that they're going to go to jail because Ray says it's manslaughter because they assume the guy is dead. Right. So was it a good choice? No. But then like, well, part of it, it's like, well, can you blame them? But at the same time, for their fear, he's, this man was in the middle of a road. Like they did not swerve onto a sidewalk and hit a person. So you shouldn't have been standing there. Yeah. I don't see it as neglect. Like, yeah, but he would not have had time to react if he was paying attention, in my opinion, with all those curves and everything. They're trying to deal so, with Barry. Like, he wasn't completely focused, but it absolutely was an accident. Yeah. This whole thing could have been avoided. And they would have caught a murderer, potentially. So Yeah. So, while the kids are all trying to decide what to do, Julie sees headlights coming. So, Ray and Barry pick up the body and kind of like take it over like the side of the railing and it's max who ends up pulling up and julie goes to talk to him because even though there's kind of like some tension there i guess she sees him in a friendly enough way like she's the safest person to go up to talk to him she just says that barry you know got too drunk so they pulled over so he could throw up and ray and helen are back there you know pretending like they're soothing him or whatever while he's getting sick and Mm -hmm. max is still trying to hit on julie which is so annoying like when i have watched this movie before i usually have felt bad for max and i'm like you know what you're kind of a dick too yeah max is creepy for me i i labeled him as like trying to be a cool leonard from like the big bang theory (laughs) yeah i i I can't see him as anything else but i think Julie is going to be the biggest distraction to Max out of everybody. So he's really not going to focus on what's happening behind her. Yeah. So Ray comes up and uh, he's like, oh, how can we help you, Max? Because he's just still like in his truck or whatever. And uh, I almost called him Leonard. Uh, (laughs) But Max is like, well, you can wipe that my shit don't stink grain off your face. And Ray's just like, okay, Max. Will do. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that Ray was so agreeable was a red flag. <laughs> See, like, it it was just one of those like awkward moments. I'm like, you can't, you can't blame like what the character does like in response because there's so much going on in that person's yeah. head. And it's then, like this is the least of my worries as Max. Yeah, for real. I mean, he had to do something to get him to go away because what would have happened if Max had stayed, gotten out of his truck, they get Max next- to leave. And mm-hmm. then they decide that they're going to throw this body um, 
into the water. Yeah, they had mentioned that the the tide will take it out and no one will find it for weeks, basically. Yeah. So, so hopefully the that logic way, no evidence would be left on his body at that point if he ever is found. Yeah. Even though you have a giant dent in your car, it, the logic is kind of there and I could I could kind of follow for it. For a like, bunch I of teenagers, it. I buy it. Right. That live on the ocean like, hey, we got a big ass body of water right here. Yep. It's using your resources, really. Good for them. Um, so all the kids put the body in the in the trunk. Like everybody puts bodies in trunks. That's just how it works. Well, where else is it gonna go? Weekend at Birdie's sit, sit on somebody's lap. Be be respectful. You know, he doesn't have to be he doesn't need to go to the trunk. Um they bring the body to the dock and put him on the edge, and Julie sees a tattoo on the body's arm. I really couldn't read it, but later on we find out that the tattoo says Susie. Um, Barry asks Ray for help, to the, and Ray doesn't really want to do it. He's kind of like, I don't want to be complicit in this at all, even though they're all complicit at this point. But Helen gets tired of it and goes to try and help Barry put the body in the water. The body wakes up, is not a body, is a person. Grabs the crown off of Helen's head and goes into the water. And Barry being the hero that he thinks he is. Right. Dives into the water to steal a crown from a live person they just dumped in the water. Yeah. And that's kind of the thing is, you know, Barry jumps in after the crown and then the body is like just there but then when Barry like approaches it his eyes open they mm-hmm. fight a little bit Barry gets they make the crown, eye contact and then Barry gets out and he's pissed and also probably scared but he won't admit that he gives Helen back the crown and then they're all going back to the car Julie is still saying He's alive. We need to get help. Like, now it's not murder. Barry goes off. And this is kind of where I, like, Ray, to me, doesn't do, doesn't do enough. Because Barry takes Julie by the throat and shoves her against the car and is, like, leaning into her, telling her, like, like take this to our grave. Yeah, and forces her to agree to it. Um, but eventually, Barry says, uh, this is now merely a future therapy bill. Agreed. And I'm like, I don't wow. even know if you can say this in therapy. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> my thought goes to, man, you guys can afford therapy? <laughs> you guys get therapy? <laughs> I got a rock. and helen has a crown yeah good for her right and then we just go to the typical one year later uh it's i assume like the last day slash last week of school um we get a good shot of julie's college roommate coming into their dorm room and then jennifer love hewitt just like turns her her head over the chair that she's sitting in so we get a good little over the shoulder shot and she looks wrecked she's hella pale 
She's got dark circles for days. Her hair is uh -huh. like stringy and long. Like we can just tell she has not been taking care of herself this past year. Yeah. And, and the friend even alludes to the fact of like, get your deathly chalky corpse up and get some sun and go home. Like she, she's a good friend, even though Julie is obviously not right or all there at the moment. Yeah. And something about this too is there's the trope. Uh, I use that in quotes where, you know, um, often it's reserved for a sequel. And this also happens in, I still know Edith last summer, the sequel to this movie where the hero goes to college and then they have a person of color roommate who is like giving them all their life advice and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So Julie's roommate is black. I don't know if she has a name. I tried when I watched it the first, like the second time to hear her name and I never heard Julie say her name. And she's only in it for that one scene. She's just encouraging Julie to go home, which Julie does. Um, she arrives at her mother's house. She's withdrawn, reserved. And then at dinner, her mom is just like, are you on drugs? And Julie <laughs> makes a weird face. And her mom's like, I just had to ask you outright because I wanted to see a genuine reaction, which is kind of good parenting, I think. You know, she's right. noticed that she she says, you know, you don't call, you haven't come home. And she has no idea what is going on inside Julie's head. I mean, I can't imagine being in that kind of situation and holding on to that kind of a secret. No, and personally, I'm pretty sure that Julie's character would have preferred jail time for six months or something done the right thing and then moved on with her life and lived with the consequences yeah that makes sense that for me that's i can't keep a secret to save my life but at the same time i have such a guilty conscience of things i'm not i shouldn't even be guilty about later on we see julia walking around her house looking at the photos of what she used to be happy-go-lucky photos of her father and we learn that Julie's getting her last chance from the dean because her grades are so poor. Um, and her. we also learned that her father is deceased. I don't know if he passed away in that year or what the deal was, but she gets a letter with no return address, with just her name and address. Um, and this is where I am like, listen, a man did not write these letters. Because the handwriting is perfect and beautiful. It's just um, very it's, clean. It's clean. It's all it's caps. All caps. Like the lettering is even. Even the like it's centered nicely. I'm like a woman did this. You can't tell me this was a fisherman man's handwriting. Yeah. Like even at the very end in the mirror. Not a man. Well, I don't buy it. Would you like to reveal what Julie's letter says? So Julie opens the letter and in all caps, black permanent marker says, I know what you did last summer. Dun, 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 dun. Hence the movie title. Yeah. See? Full circle. It's such a long name because it's got to make an impact. Yeah. It could have so. just been, I know. Or last summer. Or hit and Bad. run. Nah, I like this. <laughs> um, uh, Julie spirals 
rightfully so. And she asks her mom, do we know where she got this? And her mom says, no, Julie leaves and goes to what I assume is kind of like their main street and um, goes to visit Helen's sister who is running the family store. We did see her earlier at the party just really quick um, that Elsa uh, who is played by Bridget Wilson who plays Veronica Vaughn in Billy Madison. Love her. Um, where we can see that like, there's just like sibling tension between Helen and Elsa and Julie goes to the store to ask Elsa if she could have Helen's New York number because she wants to call her about the note. She doesn't say that. And Elsa is like, she doesn't have a New York number. And Julie's like, what are you talking about? And she, Elsa makes a little gesture over to Helen, who is at the jewelry counter in the store. Julie approaches Helen and Helen does look genuinely surprised to see her ask her how long have you been in town? Julie states, oh, I just got here. Um, and Julie asks about New York. Helen's like, I tried it and it didn't work out. And at this point, all of these kids so far who didn't want to ruin their future have ruined their future. So the inevitable thing that they were avoiding has happened regardless. I think that what happened probably affected Julie the most. Um, I would probably say in terms of how much it affected them, I would go Julie, Ray, Helen, Barry. Do you agree? I agree. Yeah. Um, Helen, I think made a lot of excuses in her head to kind of cope. But I think Helen's biggest issues were her home life with her father and her sister. Like, on on the scale of things that are bothering Helen, it's not the fishermen, it's her home life and her family dynamic. Yeah. And I think she probably got a reality check when she went to New York that all of a sudden she wasn't, you know, top dog. Right. And that probably Being, affected her. Yeah, winning a beauty pageant of five to six girls versus going to New York to be an actress is very different. Yeah. So, but to your point, yeah, their years have not turned out how they imagined that they would. Yeah. So. Well, and and while the, um, while Julie and Helen are talking, Elsa is like in the background just being super nosy and suspicious and I'm like girl mind your business like you're an adult live your life uh but they decide that after Julie shows Helen the note that they're gonna go show Barry Barry looks at the notes like I know what you did last summer and he's angry he's a dick and we've learned that Barry and Helen have broken up at some point between last July 4th and now um, and Barry holds fast he doesn't want to go to the police he doesn't want to involve anything he is convincing himself that there's no way that this note could have anything to do with what they think it has to do with until he remembers that Max drove by and then he's fully convinced Max is the only one that could have done this which that leap in logic I don't buy because, first of all, 
Max has had a full year. He would have used this already because he's creepy. He wouldn't have waited a year. He doesn't have that kind of patience or tenacity. I think that Barry is also in such a state of denial himself as well that he'll pin it on anything that he can other than take responsibility. Yeah. Well, and he, I don't know, he's got, you know, he's obviously the rich kid and the jock. So he has the support system that the uh, these other children, I say children, but they're like kind of adults. He has a support system that these other kids don't. It's so that funny he, that we're referring he, to like the, the two of us, you and me, are referring yeah. to Jennifer Love Hewitt, Sarah Michelle Geller, Ryan Philippe, and Fred Petunier as the kids. Because <laughs> I'm like... Right. They're like, what, like 10, 15 years older than us? And I'm just like, yeah. Well, it, the kids, the ch- them in, children's. In the movie, they're like 19 and we're basically 30. So. Okay, well, I am 30 and that was very rude of you. Um, yeah, because I think Ray does say that kind of in the beginning when they're all trying to figure out what to do um, with the body. Ray's like, I don't have like the resources that you have. Like, he's like the poor one. Yeah. Out of the group. Well, and. When Helen and Julie are talking um, about who it could be, Julie does bring up the fact that she learned that a man named David Egan was found three weeks after their accident. And so maybe somebody related to David or a friend is like seeking revenge, basically, or blackmail. So, yeah. Yeah, but Barry is still on his Max kit kick. Max is still working in the town, um, somewhere like on the wharf, you know, some kind of fishmongering. Uh, Barry approaches Max, threatens him. He's not very specific, but he's basically just like, leave us the fuck alone. Max has no idea what he's talking about. They get into a little bit of a scuffle. And after Barry leaves, then Max is like yelling at him, like, don't test me, motherfucker. Yeah. Like, you're well, being And... and- Barry, you know, on point with this movie, threatens him with like a fish hook and leaves it on the ice. And I'm like, oh, very subtle, very subtle. From here, we get a little break where Julie finds Ray on the docks and he's working as a fisherman. Like he never got to leave Southport. Mm -hmm. They have a little bit of like an awkward reunion. Ray asks like, how is school going? And she immediately was like, so are you a fisherman? Like your father. And then he's like, oh, I didn't know my father. But I think Ray just tries to talk about like them as a couple. And she's like, I don't want anything to do with, there is no us. I don't want to know you. Like, It's a sad dealing, like kind of angsty and wistful because you're like, oh, you guys would love each other. You just had like this traumatic experience. Right, share trauma, share it together. Yeah. That's like a little break because we go back to where Barry had hung the hook after threatening Max that the hook isn't there anymore. And Max still is. And it's like all like dry, icy, and steamy in there. And Max sees some kind of shadow form in like this steam. And then out from the fog comes the hook like into his throat and like through his mouth and drags him over the little table that he has and uh, Max is dead 
And here's my thing. I never fully understand why the fisherman killed Max. Because of his like guilty by association, I'm not sure. But Max was never really involved with the accident. And I read online, maybe the fisherman saw Max like drive by or heard his name. And I'm like, this man was not conscious. Uh, and he was very far away. And Barry was faking to puke. So like, I highly doubt that. I don't know. Somebody said maybe it was to torment the kids to show them that it's real. The threat is real. So maybe it was like a mental thing as well. I think that story-wise, that one is how it goes. Um, Some technical background on this movie, though, is that that scene was added later because test audiences thought for a slasher, it's not like super visceral or gory. Um, And really, for the most part, the I mean, there definitely are a lot of deaths, but it's kind of more of a mystery. Like, huh. there's a lot of downtime in this movie. So they went back and killed Max because Max's death doesn't change anything else that they had already shot. Yeah. Well, and I think, I guess that makes sense. But Max was a little bit of a red herring. And so was Ray. So it's like, you just took took out one of the potential people that it could have been. Yeah. So I think it it does kind of work to... To give it a little bit of something because I mean who who else dies is is he usually very, just in the way yeah or is it's, it's not involved. like you know everyone in the town is at risk right. or anything like that so I think for that it's to to show the kids the threat is real is that they got the wrong guy like they don't know anything and I think that. R. Keller just, you know, I mean, he's he's a murderer. Murder. Sorry, that was weird. Um, But next we cut to Barry showing up to the gym to do some boxing and stuff. And I will say that he's ripped. Like in this movie, he's got like the abs are abbing, honestly. I don't know why I just said that, but it works. Um, but then he sees like a shadow in the locker room and then I noticed when I was watching this and like I think I noticed it for the first time so there's like rows of lockers that Barry is walking through to see like who else was in there with him and then I noticed like as he's walking through like the rows then like all the exercise equipment is in the background so like the punchy bag he was using there were a couple like weight benches and things like that and my thought was like and and it's possible that this could like just be a men's gym or something. Like it really just looks like it's a very small town, like mm-hmm. little made up building. Like it's not like you know a gym. Yeah, it's like a workout facility that they've created in the small town. And my thought was, you know, oh, so when the guys who are working out their view is like all the other guys who are like showering and changing and doing whatever, like right in front of them. Hey, you gotta so, get your motivation somehow, I guess. They're like, I want to be like that guy with all the abs <laughs> and I can see his ripped booty in front of me. Yeah. Oh, I probably shouldn't say ripped booty. Leave it in. Sounds gay. <laughs> well, so do I. <laughs> um, when Barry goes back 
to his locker his jacket which is you know so important to him is missing staple yeah because i mean in high school like he gave uh helen his jacket when they went to the beach because she was cold so like i get like a guy's jacket kind of a thing but this was really just like the inciting incident and barry has a little oh go ahead also if you're wearing your letterman jacket more than a year out of high school stop 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 that's all i have to say about that well and here's why because it will get stolen and you will find a note in your locker uh, with a picture of your car that says i know and then you will hear your car outside of your gym turning on and you'll run outside and get chased down with your car and kind of swerve back and forth while somebody is driving your car and runs you through a wall. And then stands over you very menacingly. Because that's what happens to Barry. So that's what's going to happen to you. Yeah, and this is the first time that we get to see, kind of see the killer. And, you know, he's in waiter's rubber boots, a slicker jacket, and a fisherman's hat. Like, just... Honestly, if he wasn't a fisherman, I think it would be like a fetish with the amount of rubber this man is wearing. Well, and then um, he reaches like inside his little coat and he pulls out a hook. Which, going back to what Julie said, is very phallic. Like, I was like, is he going to flash him? But then the hook came out and I'm like, it's kind of like flashing. Well, like, and look at my big shiny hook. Because I. I don't remember when i watched this for the first time because it has been a long time that i know for a fact i didn't see the very beginning where we saw the guy on the cliff but i do remember this scene so i don't even know what part of the movie i like stumbled upon i don't know how i found it i don't know anything Mm -hmm. but i remember the scene of the car going through the wall after hitting barry and then like the the shadow and it's like kind of upside down so barry's laying on his back like looking up and like what would have been from behind him the fisherman comes up and i just remember like that scene like that shot of the fisherman so it's spooky and it scared 12 year old rachel barry is begging for his life like a little bitch yeah this is the only time he probably has ever said please in this whole movie in his whole life (laughs) definitely in his whole life um so we go to the hospital because um, Barry got fucked up. Yeah, he got hit by a car and ran through a wall. Yeah, so his friends all join him at the hospital. And Barry is delusional because he says that the man in the slicker suit wasn't trying to kill him. Yeah, and Helen and Julie are like, he ran you over. And he was like, well, he could have killed me if you wanted to. Yeah, I, he wants to torment you. Like, he wants mental torment. Um, So Ray then suggests, like, we should come clean because this is getting dangerous. They, they should contact the police, but no. That, they don't want to do that. Or Barry doesn't want to do that. And they all go with what Barry does because he's the loudest and the most aggressive, in my opinion. Yeah, I think... Um, I mean, I'm getting a little bit off subject, but I think... Even if what a perceived leader is saying isn't right, 
I feel like for some people, it's still easier to follow them than it is to oppose them. I could see that. And I could see that if you've, if this person has established their role in the past as being the decision maker and the leader, then it's hard to kind of change that dynamic. Mm-hmm. So especially once yep. you've all kind of done, like gone through a traumatic experience like that, like yeah. again, not promoting this. I'm just saying I get it. So the four brain cells that are in the hospital room are trying to <laughs> figure out what they should do next. <laughs> okay, but those four brain cells are between Ray and Julie. <laughs> Helen is wonderful and I love her. She just I'll give her a brain cell. She can have one erase. Yeah. I would say Julie definitely has double the brain cells of anybody in that room. So I would agree. Two brain cells to Julie, one to Ray, one to Helen. Honestly, I feel like Barry... None for Barry Cox. Bye. I believe he brings down the average with a negative, in my opinion. But we're not going to go there. So Helen and Julie decide that they're going to do research on David Egan, which is the man that was found in the ocean three weeks after their accident quote-unquote accident it was an accident it it was it started as an accident then it turned into manslaughter and murder and yeah also the research that they had to do for this would have been so tiresome i would not have even tried because they're like uh it's 1997 they got a laptop because julie's in college but they're pulling up newspaper articles and reading because like the control f finds probably was not a situation at the moment and i would have rather died i would have been like you know what murder me because i'm not reading all these newspapers you know uh, since you bring that up so what happens is that julie figures out from david egan's obituary who is next of kin is is his sister and then julie and helen go drive out to where she lives and i was talking to marissa and i was saying something like you know how I'll say, you know, just in general, boomers or whatever, think that our generation or whatever, like, we're lazy, we're not doing as much as they did and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know, it's because we didn't have to actually map out the roads we were taking and figure all that out. So automation and technology gave us so much of our time back. Of course, I'm going to spend the rest of my time doing my silly little things. Because, right. like, it's- what else am I going to do? It's about improvement and it's creating, creating time for you to do what you really want to do, you know, to be creative, to be, to learn things you want to learn and not things that you have to learn to survive, basically. I told Um, um, my lead today, long story short, I had a ton of like work-related things to do after work, after I was already home, after I already took my bra off and I called my lead for something and when we were just talking I I said something about how I had my insert name of workplace brain for eight hours a day and then I have so many other things going on you know the book this podcast and all the other Mm -hmm. stuff and I was like you get this brain for this and then I got too much going on for the rest of my brain so yeah I don't have time to map out my roads I'm just gonna put in my little GPS and then call it a day and even if I know where I'm going, I'm going to put the GPS in to make sure there's no wrecks and I need to, like, reroute, okay? Yeah, like, our so, economy's going to die. Let me have my GPS. <laughs> <laughs> and 
and my calculator on my phone. During the research, Helen and Julie also learned that David Egan's fiance died in a wreck one year prior to their accident and that he was responsible and that he lived. So like so, two years ago from present day. Right. And so maybe he was visiting where it happened, you know, as like a, sorry, I killed you in a car wreck. Love you. Bye. It's Missy and not Missy. Sorry. Helen and Julie are driving out to the sticks to see where Missy, which is David Egan's sister, lives. And one of the parts that I really love is Helen is navigating and she goes, turn right. And Julie goes, where? She goes, um, back there. <laughs> yeah. Valid. Because she does live in the sticks. down In the middle of the literal woods. But they arrive to Missy's house, which is not really dilapidated, but not really well taken care of either. But it's very country, you know, dead animals on the walls and like on the outside outbuildings. And, it looks like uh, Missy is just out there being self-sufficient. Right. Which made me want to go to that. So if I end up moving further deep into the woods, I'm sorry. I'll make sure I have good internet. Yeah. Well, um, that's it. Um, yeah. So Anne Hesh plays Missy Egan. R.I.P. She passed away last year in a car accident herself. Oh, so. wow. Didn't I know that? Also, I don't know why, but the character of Missy in this movie just gives me Joe Dirt flashbacks. Absolutely. Is she in that? No. It's just Joe Dirt vibes. Life's a garden. Dig it. I, ju- I knew for sure you were going to make like a hoe <laughs> reference from that. <laughs> So. No, my my favorite line is um when he's looking at the moon and some he he's like a homeless guy and he goes I'm your man and he's like you like to see homos naked and he's like no how am I your man he's trying to say home is where you make it <laughs> and he's like I get it bro you like to see homos naked okay like I mean can't it be both during Pride Month come on yeah Joe Dirt should have been our Pride Month movie. They, on the drive down this drive, down the long driveway, Helen and Miss, why do I keep calling Julie Missy now? Helen and Julie are like, should we come up with a story? Like, what's our story? And Julie's like, nah, we'll just wing it. I don't like winging nothing. But they knock on the door. Nobody really answers. So Julie decides to go around to the window and be a peeping Tom. And then we see in a broken mirror, like, Missy appears. And startles them. And Missy still lets them inside to use her phone because they claim that their car has broken down and they need to call AAA. So they go Nobody inside. Has never seen when a stranger calls back. <laughs> well, she's lonely. She she mentioned she doesn't really get visitors that often. Her mother moved away because she couldn't handle it. Oh no, she's in a nursing home because she couldn't handle it after David had passed away. So she lives in this big-ass house all by herself in the middle of nowhere. But Julie tries to, like, coax her into talking about things. You know, where did you go to high school? Did David have any friends? And Missy mentions that Billy Blue stopped to pay his respects and that they were sweet on each other for a few weeks. And the second time I watched this, it clicked. And I'm like, Ray, you fucking whore. Well, you... Okay. Son of a bitch. So what's going on is 
you know, Julie and Helen are trying to like doctor out a little bit of information. So yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's not really until like you get the second watch through. Yeah. I that think, you really make I the think whole Ray was probably doing the same thing, just trying to get information. So spoiler. Yeah. Um, we'll find out at the end that Billy Blue is Ray. And that's the name of his right. boat. So that's where the name comes from. I think that he was probably just like nice and polite to her. And Missy is lonely and just thought, oh my God, Freddie Prince Jr. has a crush on me. I mean, if that's Freddie what Prince I Jr. If, if Freddie Prince Jr. showed up at my house and like for a few times for a couple weeks, I'd be like, I got a boyfriend. I got well, a husband. Literally. I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> I'm married. The talking gone. dog. <laughs> I think that Julie just gets like, freaked out and is like uh forget the tea um i'm gonna go away for triple a and make sure i don't miss them she she kind of admits back in the car that like seeing the sister was too much for her and that i think it was the guilt that really was getting her to her and fucking jump scare because missy comes out of nowhere in the mirror or in the window and is like well i don't even know what she says this probably wasn't even that like important but she's like Oh, you forgot your cigarettes. She's like, you forgot your cigarettes. And I'm like, they were not that important for you to scare me like that. Well, yeah. And then but, Julie, like, gets the car to start working. And Anne Hash is, <laughs> Anne Hash. I mean, it is Anne Hash, but it's Missy. And she's just like, oh, well, you got your car to work. Like, and it's kind of a little creepy. Like, I think that yeah. they're also trying to throw in that, like, Missy might be involved. Because, like, you know, she's rugged. She's living out in the stick. She, you know can butcher animals and stuff like that like so she has a little bit of the skill and like she's unconventional so i think that she's a little bit of a red herring yeah i would agree because they make her look suspicious even as they drive away but one of the things that knife yeah one of the things that helen said in the car that i disagreed with was she said i don't think we're that powerful in the aspect of ruining people's lives because they killed David Egan as they believe. And I'm like, if you, if somebody dies, that does impact multiple people that loved and relied on that person potentially. So when Julie is dropping Helen back off at home, Helen mentions that, you know, since his fiance Susie had died the year before that and, you know, possibly if David was in the same area, maybe he wanted to die I think Helen's just trying to justify what happened to herself again. And Julie, I don't think is necessarily buying it. I think that she's just blaming herself completely for her being complicit and the actions of what's going on. So it's kind of just a thing. The next little scene I really enjoy. um, So Helen's at home. She walks in. Her dad is just completely zoned in the TV and a baseball game. Helen tries to talk to him and he just does not respond and uh then helen goes in the kitchen katrina made a really mean note about this because helen goes to get a diet coke out of her fridge and katrina is like i do not enjoy diet coke and no and i know that there are so many people that like that's their go-to drink and you're all wrong on so many levels. I think, I mean, Diet Coke for me, if we're going to talk about it, is absolutely a byproduct of my Swiftyism because in 2012 and 2013, 
I think a little bit after that, Taylor Swift had contract with Diet Coke. And I literally still have like a couple cans and bottles from that. I have the little Diet Coke can I got at the concert still. I'm crazy pants. And I'm not sorry. Yeah, I didn't think that you would be. I am a Pepsi girl. Like growing up, my dad drank solely Diet Pepsi. That's all he drank. Um, but after moving out, I was like, uh, I think we're just going to go with like regular Pepsi. And that's just kind of been my thing. I will say that my mother does not carry any Pepsi in her house <laughs> because she was forced to buy Pepsi for so many years, like living with my father. And I, I tell her all the time, I'm like, mom, I like Pepsi. And she goes, okay. So I think she considers buying like, so that when I come over, I have a drink. She has literally like tons and tons of like 12 packs of pop out there. And now one of them is Pepsi. And that's the only one I want. I come from a Coke family for sure. I'm the oddball because I drink diet instead of regular Coke. Yeah. My dad used to drink like diet Pepsi and Weller's whiskey. Um, and I would always do like a test sniff, like pick up his cup. Cause you're a child, you steal your parents' drink. Like I would sniff it. And if it smelled like whiskey and I'd put it back down, but there was one time he had it in a styrofoam cup and I did not know. And I took a giant drink and I ran to the kitchen and spit the whole thing back out. And he just laughed. Like, I get that that was kind of like karma for me stealing his Pepsi, though. So I deserve that. We'll say I'm not still not a Pepsi or not Pepsi, but whiskey fan. Anyway, Helen is getting her Diet Coke and her face is just I feel like she's just so overwhelmed that her face is just blank at this point. She's like, I'm going to drink my Diet Coke, even though it's literally like three ounces that she put in this cup. Okay, but that's Um, like what we do. We have a diet coke and we have the strength to move on it and it's fine i'm I'm here for it do what you gotta do during my notes i named the man slicker man because i didn't know his name yet so yeah. slicker man so while helen is getting her sip of diet coke to calm the nerves we see slicker man as i have named him enter the house but we also cut to the father who see you can see a shadow but he's way too it way to into this baseball game to even care. As we see him go up the stairs, Helen is getting done with her drink. And as he enters her bedroom, she comes around the stairs. So she never really sees him. But I um, did as a 12 year old and I was very scared. Right. We know, but she don't know. So we go into Helen's bedroom with her and she's getting ready for bed. And we know that he's in the closet because they point to the closet with the camera and we see a crack and we I don't I feel like we hear breathing and I'm just like ugh I don't like it maybe that was just you breathing really loud it might have been the next thing is like Helen takes her croaker queen crown that's say that five times fast croaker no croaker queen (laughs) crown croaker queen crown croaker queen crown croaker queen crown croaker queen crown I found a new tongue twister. Helen gets her Crooker Queen crown. Oh God, no! I thought I, I thought I really had it. Helen picks Crooker up her queen crown. crown. <laughs> no, I don't think. I think you said Queen Cream. Crooker Queen. queen. Yes, she picks up her crown and is looking at it. And I'm assuming because tomorrow she has to give it back at the new Crooker Queen pageant. 
Elsa comes in and starts berating her, basically, and is telling her, you need to be at work at 10 because daddy put me in charge of the store. And she's like, bro, I got to be in the parade. Do you not remember I'm the queen? And so Elsa decides, you know what? You and your hair, you're so pathetic, which is where I'm guessing Slicker Man gets the great idea of, I think I know my next move. It's, yeah, it's been mentioned more than once about Helen and her hair. So, yeah, I feel like this is just like a double down. Yeah. The next scene, we have Helen waking up in her bed with a crown on her head, which she did not fall asleep with because she's very confused when she takes it off. And she sees hair on it and starts pulling chunks and chunks of hair that had been very roughly cut off of her. When she gets up, she sees soon in all caps, red lipstick on her mirror. And she just punches her mirror. Like, like that's going to fix things. Bruh, that's like evidence. I was just going to say, um, I mean, it's probably her lipstick, but really. Yeah. Um, and Sarah Michelle Geller has a really good horror movie screen for that, too. She's like, nah. yeah. This next scene I have lovingly named You've Got Crabs. Yeah, it was a good one. So we go back to Julie's house the next morning. She gets a call from what we presume is Helen. And Julie's like whole face drops. And I really love this shot. The camera shot is outside of Julie's window on the second floor. And she they have like a little phone table in like by the stairs, which we used to have phone tables, you know, when we had landlines. So this makes sense to me. She <laughs> hangs up the phone. And she runs down the stairs, which is directly behind where she was standing. And then the camera just, like, floats down. And so, like, underneath the window is the front door under the porch. And then she runs out of the house. I just think that that's a really cool shot. And she's driving over to Helen's house. And she just hears something in the back of her car. She, like, glances in the back seat. There's nothing there. But then she just keeps hearing some scratching. And she pulls over, looks in her trunk. And it's Max's body, a billion crabs all over it. Yeah. Literally, I'm more bothered by the crabs because I feel like they would smell more if the body was a nice. But um, she closes it and then runs to get Helen and Barry, which Barry was in Helen's room when Julie got there. So he was obviously faster or closer than Julie. Um, But when they get back to Julie's car, it's perfectly clean. Like it has like a few normal items in it laid out and she's like i'm not crazy and because barry is trying to gaslight her a little bit but i mean it is something that's kind of like hard to imagine that that would be real when they haven't there's no clarification no one in their minds has been murdered at this point until julie sees max yeah and and, and that's this like the whole thing like especially on this rewatch it was like a little bit so Jennifer Love Hewitt, this is the famous scene where she's in the street, she's spinning in a circle, and she's like, what are you waiting for? It's, it's very iconic. And the fun fact about that particular part is it was, like, directed by a kid. Like, they, I don't remember if they had, like, some contest or something, but, like, that's what the kid, like, wanted her to say. And Jennifer Love Hewitt was in an interview, and she's like, okay, I'll say it. But then, like, now it's, like, kind of iconic. So, yeah. Jennifer Love Hewitt, she's like, yeah, it's fine. Like, whatever. Well, she, I, I mean, think I that guess, she got her bag, you know? 
Yeah, and I mean, if he took the crabs in the body, he's probably still around close enough to be watching. He enjoys uh, the chase. He yeah. likes the game, so I, I feel like he's watching. But the whole the whole point of what I was going to say before, I just had to put that in there because we couldn't have an I Know What You Did Last Summer podcast unless we mentioned that scene. Skip it. Anyway, the thing about it that's a little weird about Barry trying to gaslight Julie, like you're saying, and then Helen not being as jarred by Julie saying that there was a body in her trunk, the three of them go to find Ray because Barry has convinced himself now that the fisherman must be Ray because he has a slicker and that's their logic in a fishing town. Which is like a third of the people in this town. At minimum. Right. So uh, Barry, Julie, and Helen, I don't know, like they're in like a someone's yard. And they come I, from one yeah, direction and Ray else. comes from somewhere else. This is the scene where I was saying that they kind of had to frame it to where it looks like Ryan Phillippe and Freddie Prince Jr. were any kind of matched. Because Barry comes up and just socks Ray in the face and knocks him down. And then they fight a little bit. The girls kind of get him to stop. Ray says that he's been um, reached out to, like, by the killer, too. And he's like, I got a letter. And Barry's like, you got a letter? He's like, I'm almost roadkill. Helen gets her hair chopped off. Julie's got a body in a trunk. And you get a letter. So it's like, just really that's not balance. Well, and that's no. the thing, too. Because, you know, like, literally five seconds ago, Barry's like, it's no big deal. When he was the first one who got attacked. And I feel like, I feel like Barry would in some kind of way, like, enjoy having been the first victim. Like, he would have been like, look what happened to me. I'm like, am I wrong? See, and I was kind of looking at, at looking at it like Barry's trying to put on this facade of he's not scared, which I think it did scare him. And he's trying to put on a front here and be like, I'm not fucking scared. Like, get me. Which, and, uh, but I think he is. I think he is concerned. But I do think he's more concerned for Helen, obviously, than himself. Like, there's still a little bit of love there or something? Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. It seems like, like in the last... It's bit. like a little inconsistent character thing that kind of just throws me off a little bit. Yeah. They oh, kind of make a plan. Barry is going to go with Helen to the parade. And Julie and Ray are... Katrina's note says, Julie gets the Scooby gang back together. <laughs> go ahead. But when... I think they mentioned... Like, Julie mentions, like trying to find, like, Billy Blue. Ray's like, oh, I I can't do that. I'm not part of that. And gets real sus about it. Oh, yeah, because they were going to look at Elsa's yearbook to see if they could find, like, a kid in a a year or something. And then show Missy, like, photos to see if, like, she can, like, identify, like, a lineup, basically, to identify who Billy Blue is. Yeah. Because she's like, he could have lied like we did about our names. But I I just want to add this whole time... I know that Helen is supposed to be at this parade and ready. And I have such anxiety. Like, I don't know what time it is. I don't know what time she wakes up with her hair chopped. From that to the crabs to this little meeting. And I'm like, she's going to be late. She has, somehow has time for a haircut to get something properly done. And the whole, I'm like, she's going to be late. She's going to miss it. Like, this is important. Like. And I'm like, it's not even that important. Yeah, that's true. Um, Julie says that 
she's going to go back to Missy's. Um, Ray won't go with her, but Julie is determined. So the next part, we're kind of, you know, just getting different points of view of what each character is doing. So Barry is riding on the float in the parade with Helen. He, they're, well, I guess they're both really kind of looking out for all of the people that are in Slickers and see who seems suspicious yeah. between them. Helen thinks that she might have found the right one, points him out to Barry, who chases this old guy down and, like, tackles him and then doesn't really go anywhere with it. Like, they just decide, like, oh, he's not the right one, and then they're done with it. And doesn't even say sorry. Like, this is an old man you just scared the shit out of and probably broke his hip. Like, and then they end up seeing a lot of men in slickers. Um... Yeah, so who's, but, who's to know? So eventually, Helen spots a man in a slicker, like, alone up at the top of one of these balconies. And the guy pulls out a hook and does the, like, I'm going to cut your throat motion. And she's like, oh, shit, I found him. But Barry's not there when she finds him. Yeah, so it's, like, just, like, a lingering little scare. Yeah. And... So we go over to Julie, who is arriving back at Missy's house with some, like, old, kind of creepy country music playing. There's a turkey hanging. I'm guessing that she probably may have, like, hunted recently. Missy just looks creepy as shit again. And she's, like, asking Julie, what are you doing here? And then we go back to the parade. So it's really a lot of, like, back and forth in these cuts. So Julie is trying to ask about Billy Blue and Missy says, well, there's no reason to think about it because David committed suicide and he left a, le- left a note because everyone blamed him for Susie's death. Because Julie is trying to like be like, listen, it was, a, it was an accident. She's like, no, it was suicide. Yeah, Julie's when, like almost trying to confess before yeah. Missy pulls out the note that she had very conveniently accessible. And like in a, in a shed. Yeah, she shows it to Julie with the same handwriting, same, like, shape of paper and everything. And it says, I will never forget last summer. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, so Julie's then realizing that they didn't hit David Egan. Right. So then because... she starts doing a little bit more research um, after... Missy also says that David didn't have a tattoo because they're arguing, like they're going back and forth. Like Julie's saying like, no, we did this. And she's like, no, you didn't. Yeah. Because one of the things I thought was if David Egan like was ruled an accidental drowning or something like that, they would have saw, they would have seen the trauma from the car is my assumption because it was a hard hit. If even if it was a few weeks, potentially depending on the like the temperature of the water, well, and, and if there and, are any know, like, fish, there any rocks because they said something about like the current, mm-hmm. so, like the riptide. Yeah, so yeah, who like, knows? There could have been anything. I think accidental drowning is just the easiest thing to say. Yeah. Now we're getting into the good stuff, like the the end of the movie, mm-hmm. and this like, all quick, quick, quick all happens really fast. Yeah, so uh, Helen is the reigning queen at this year's pageant, and she kind of looks really disenchanted with the 
quote unquote quality of the contestants. And I think that this is kind of where she's realizing that these things that she cared so much about don't matter, that they're, they're not able to help her or support her in like what is her real life. So I understand the kind of like disappointment and like what a letdown that is. Mm -hmm. But we don't get very much time to consider Helen's emotional journey right now because she sees a fisherman silhouette come up behind Barry, who's watching from the same balcony he watched her the year before. When I saw your notes, Katrina, I completely agree. Literally from the first time I saw this movie, this little part of the scene pisses me off. I'm so, like, thinking about it, I'm so angry right now. So Helen starts screaming because Barry's getting attacked. She's like, he like he's going to kill him. He's going to kill him. And she runs into the audience, like, to try and go help him. And the crowd... And just a bunch of men just grab her and hold her back. And she's trying to, like, fight against them to, like, get out. And until a police officer is like, what's going on, little lady? And, like, these people are so calm. And I'm like, you should be reacting differently. Somebody should be running to, like, help rather than holding her back. Well, and that's the thing. Like, she was screaming. She was pointing. She's like, the balcony, he's going to kill him. I mean, we're playing the pronoun game here, which is a little frustrating. But, like, literally nobody even turns their head. Not even the people who were on the stage facing the same direction as Helen. And there was, there's an aisle between the two, like, sets of chairs that are watching the show. And I'm just like, she, she took off in a run. Like, she could have made that aisle to get out, but it was in the script that this group of people stopped her and I hate it. Oh, and then until she agreed, until the police officer was like, okay, let's go look together. Like the man, like let's go of her at that second. And I'm like, stop fucking touching people. Like I would have literally let an elbow fly so hard to that man's face. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So the, Police officer and Helen go up to the little balcony and he's like, well, I don't see anything. Bro, you didn't even look. Literally, because on like the other side, it's not a big balcony, but they just look at half of it and you don't see like the blood dripping from the other side. They literally should have just, yeah. like, they would have just turned on the stage lights or the house lights, but it, it was in the script. It... <sighs> oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm moving on because I'm frustrated with all of it. And it just gets more frustrating. Um, I want to say that the police officer said that he tried to call Helen's parents, but yeah. couldn't get a hold of them, so he's going to take her home. And I'd like to say to our fisherman, he really has thought of everything because the Main Street Road that the police officer was going to use to take Helen home, who is sitting in the back of the police car, and that's an interesting thing to me. And I don't know if maybe she's not allowed to because, like, of all the buttons and things. I don't know. Could be a policy. Could be, like, a... I feel like it's in the script because I... My dad was a cop for a billion years and I have ridden in the front seat so many times. He did have a... I mean, he's had several different, like, partners over the years. Um, But I remember, I think I was, like, 15 or something and he 
drove me to Legends to drop me off for a date. Like when I was hanging out with like my boyfriend when I was like 15 years old. So I got dropped off for a date in a cop car. Mm. So I bet that looked great. Yeah. And then I come out and they're like, oh yeah, she's dangerous. <laughs> Helen is sitting in the back of the police car. She's explaining what's going on and that she knows like there is somebody after her. The cop doesn't listen because it's in the script. Um, so when he gets to like the road close sign, he drives down the alley where Which... there is a man who we can't see because he's just like in the silhouette of a streetlight um hovering over the hood of his car yeah and i just want to say um you're a cop go around the barrier true personally well and if something's going on because like this girl is convinced that there's a murder happening and even if like you don't believe or have evidence of some stuff like i feel like there should still be like a little bit of something like this girl is known in the town like she was the croaker queen She's not like the town crazy. Right. That's she also doesn't something that's like she's not known why? for being doing drugs or drunk or anything. Yeah, she's like so the golden girl. So why not just even give her the benefit of the doubt? So this cop gets out of the car to go help this other man. And it's like, okay, you're just leaving this girl in the back of your car too. But um it's in the script because the cop gets marked. Because yep. who do you guess is the man? Slicker man. Slicker man. Um, it's a good kill though. Like the hook goes like right into his gut and kind of like pulls the cop up and then he just He did. But so now uh obviously she's freaking out. And also good for Helen. She tries to like bang on the metal like cage and everything but with like two kicks she broke the glass crawled out on the glass fell on it and just booked it like yeah what she a like kicked out the window and she mm-hmm. was running in her heels she lost them she loses them at some point i don't know where but like in her heels as fast as she can to her family's department store because that's the closest thing she can think of and as she's running, she sees Elsa and she's screaming. She gets to the door and she's banging, screaming, Elsa, Elsa, let me in. He's trying to get me. And in the most nonchalant way, she's walking and then she goes, oh, I should get my keys. Walks back and I'm so frustrated. Like unlocks it and then lets her in and nobody's behind her. So Elsa's like, you're fucking crazy. Yeah, this was like a big like Halloween thing. Like we're getting the back and forth of slicker man like slow walking yes where helen is and like the camera is like almost to helen by the time elsa lets her in through the glass door but you know slicker man has mysteriously vanished right and so helen tells elsa go lock the back door and she's gonna go try and call i'm assuming the police to tell them like one of their own is you got a man down here but Elsa goes to the back door, but is too late. And when she turns around, she gets hooked right in the gullet. Yes, she did. I don't know if the gullet's the right way. But also the way that she hangs, because he like carries her body with the hook, looks so uncomfortable. I'm like, how's she doing? Oh, she is dead. Helen calls out for Elsa because she hears Elsa scream and 
Elsa does not respond, obviously, because she's dead. I put in the notes. I'm like, listen, if she doesn't respond, I'm not going to go look for her because she's probably dead. Yeah. And at that point, I mean, Helen has watched her boyfriend die, watched a cop die. and then, All within like 30 minutes. Yeah. And then see, well, can very intelligently assume that her sister now has been killed. So yeah. to to go for like this point, Helen has experienced the most actual trauma. Yes. To see all this. And the way that she conducts herself after is very, very smart. And I wouldn't say that Helen is like the dumb blonde. Because no. I don't think that she's really ever been dumb. But she's more vapid than how Julie is perceived. I think that Sarah Michelle Geller did a really great job with this character. Like she Helen's a competent woman. So I I really enjoy this chase scene. I feel like there's a lot of, you know how like when you yell at a horror movie character and they're like, don't do this. I feel like Helen does a lot of smart things. Yeah. And she had the home team advantage of being in the department store where she worked. And that did work to her advantage for a little bit. Yeah. So Helen, I believe, is probably trying to escape, but now she doesn't know where Slicker Man is. And the doors are locked. The doors are locked. And it's like all the lights are off. Um, The phone line was cut. Then the power got shut off. So Helen's trying to make her way through. Then she sees a bunch of mannequins that are all covered in plastic. And it's kind of like a Mexican standoff. Like Helen's trying to like look through. But then she looks just a little bit too long. So then Slicker Man like jumps out at her. It's a good jump scare little bit of a chase scene. Then they have, like, a very large dumbwaiter. And I say that because, like, it's all self-propelled. So right. there's, like, a rope on a pulley. So Helen pulls herself up to the second floor. And I was so stressed. Like... It's a really tense scene. And I normally don't feel too many feelings when watching movies, but I felt stress mm-hmm. during this because, like, He's trying to slice her ankle with the hook and she's just like pulling as fast as she can. And I'm just like, oh, 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 oh. Well, and then we have like the little cut of, you know, Helen's pulling herself up in the elevator. And then we see like the slicker man is coming around like to the stairs. And Mm -hmm. this is me at 12 years old, like planning out how I would make an escape plan. So my strategy I feel like maybe I've mentioned this before. Maybe I haven't. But I will tell you that this is absolutely where it all stems from. My strategy is the double back strategy. Mm. So Helen's like pulling herself up. All she has to do is just pull on the other side of the rope and then pull herself down. Because the slicker man will hear the rope still going and possibly assume that she's still going up. And it is... Helen doesn't know for sure that the guy has gone to the stairs mm-hmm. but i feel like it's not out of the realm of possibility in her head so if she goes like if she's pulling up enough to where like she gets out of the guy's reach assumes that he's going up the stairs then she can actually go back down and then potentially have escaped through one of the doors that way one of the other the ones that i like are the the fake outs you break the window and like drop a shoe down there. 
um, and then you hide somewhere in the attic so that when they go down to like find you, you're still in the attic and you're still safe. Yeah, that's a really good one. And both of those potentially could have worked. Because and I think, I mean, what she did almost worked anyway. I mean, she's a badass for jumping out of that window into the dumpster. Yeah, so like, when she gets out of the elevator and she's kind of getting cornered, there's a couple windows on the top floor. And I will say, it's a little bit of a cheat because one of them was already uh, propped open a little bit. Mm-hmm. So she pulled it open and then there's like a commercial dumpster outside of the window. So, I mean, she looks back like once and she just jumps and it kind of knocks the wind out of her for a minute. I mean, it looks like it really might only have been like 10, 15 feet, which isn't like not a long way to fall. But I would think like maybe the adrenaline would like push her a little bit. I don't know. Well, maybe it's because it I'm like a foot on... taller than Sarah Michelle Geller, So I see distance <laughs> differently. Well, and I feel like I weigh more than her. So I'm going to fall harder than her. And also it depends on what you fall on. If it's a bunch of cardboard okay but if it's a bunch of like wood not so great yeah helen starts running down like a series of alleys it feels like like she turns once or twice and then sees the fireworks which does not work in her favor because that kind of covers up sound Mm. and then we get this last glimpse of hope when she sees the parade passing by with a band playing and right before she can reach the street, she turns Slicker around, uh huh, grabs her God and like shoves it. her into some tires that are all stacked up, and starts killing her. And she does fight; like she's the only one that like really gets a fight like before she dies, in my opinion. Yeah, I feel, I feel like her chase scene and her death, while inevitable, was very earned. Like, mm-hmm. it wasn't just, like, we're dead. It wasn't really, like, Barry, which was, like, kind of off screen. Yeah. So I I think that it's it's a really, really good scene. And it wasn't, you know, she tripped and did something stupid and he caught her and whatnot. Or, yeah, I feel but- like beyond pushing the boundaries of what was in the script, she did everything she could have done. And sometimes, you know, that's just how life goes because we try a lot of things, but we're all going to die. The queen is dead. I don't... I don't know. Isn't that the president song? It is, but I I didn't know. I do not know the melody to God Save the Queen. (laughs) I don't even know the name of it. That's all Um, I got. I I don't know anything else other than the name. Now we're into the real end of the movie get it real because it's a fisherman town uh, <laughs> i thought you were saying real like a film real triple entendre did it i love that but this scene i titled i'm on a boat boats and hoes man so there's your hoe joke there we go oh, we did it got it I love it i knew see i knew it was coming i was just clairvoyant about it <laughs> uh there. So Julie ends up right where, like, in the street close to where Helen was just murdered and misses her. And it's tough, but she's completely oblivious. Um, But Julie goes to the docks and finds Ray 
to tell him everything that she's found out about who the real killer is, which is Ben, who killed David. Yeah, ben, so Susie Willis, Susie's father yes, is Susie, Ben. Okay, let's just break it all down. Okay. Susie Willis died in the car wreck at the accidental hand of David Egan. And Julie found Susie's, um, I almost said autobiography, but it's obituary, that she was survived by her father, Ben Willis. So Julie has come to tell Ray that she thinks that it might be Ben who's after them. But as the plot would have it, Julie looks down at Ray's little boat and it's called Billy Blue. So all of her theories go out the window and she is just like, it's you. Like you were the one who went and saw Missy. You're the fisherman. And then she runs away. She's got a very good horror movie run too. I think it's because her boobs are really big and I love them. I do want to mention that earlier in the movie when Ray and Julie were first reunited and she is like, I don't want to know you anymore. She like starts walking and then like jogs away down the pier. And I'm like, what, why, why are we running? Why are you running? Why are you running? (laughs) She's just, she gotta go. She's gotta get out of there. Yeah. She bolted. Um, But she really ran this time. And Ray runs after her to try and like tell his side of the story, but is like arm barred. Yeah. By a friendly fisherman who's trying to help a girl get away from a man who's chasing her. And says, get on my boat. And then says, he's a child. I know. Like, this is such, like, a piece of dialogue versus, like, something somebody would say. You know what I mean? Like, nobody normal says that. Also, like that. Yeah, I... I did as soon as he said that, I said, but nope. I'll take my chances in the ocean with the fish. Absolutely not. Mm, I won't, but <laughs> yeah, let's not get onto strange man men's boats, please. Yeah. And um it's literally like seconds after Julie just decides to get on this man's boat that she sees a bunch of like news articles about David Egan's death, Susie Willis's death, and then there's a bunch of pictures of Julie and her friends. Yeah, and that is when we see the man with the silver spinner come in, which is the one that we saw David with originally in the opening, and we've seen it a few times throughout. Um, but he all coming together. Yeah, so we come to the conclusion that this is Ben Willis. AKA Slicker Man, Susie's father, all of the above murderer of David Egan and a couple other people. Uh, Everybody else who's died, it was him. <laughs> it, yeah. Which, how can he be this upset at these kids for committing, trying to commit murder when he himself was committing murder? Okay, but it was okay because he was doing it. It's not okay when other people do it. Narcissist. Literally. Anyway. I do really love like 
the line we get Mm -hmm. because Julie is looking at everything and she's like noticeably confused when uh, Ben Willis comes in and he's talking to Julie about how it's July 4th and he says kids like you should be out having fun drinking partying running people over getting away with murder and Julie's face like when it finally clicks for her woof okay but they didn't get away with murder because he didn't die valid very valid point it's attempted murder (laughs) (laughs) literally right I would be like man like it's only attempted murder nothing I do I can't do it right (laughs) I can't even murder you right I'm sorry uh but this boat scene just it happens very quickly like there's a lot of things happening once julie realizes that oh shit this is the man that's trying to kill us she runs out onto like the outside of the room of okay listen my boat terminology is going to be terrible okay but she goes on out of the inside of the what do you call it the deck ah you swab the deck, matey. Okay. I'm literally like, <laughs> you and I have gone on a cruise together. I'm like, what, what are these things? But like, this is a fishing boat. It's not a cruise boat. So they're going to have different It has parts. an inside and outside and upstairs and a downstairs. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Some nets and some sails and some, anyway. Some ropes, which will Ju- all come into place. <laughs> yes. And hooks. Julie runs out onto the deck And now she sees that, oh shit, we have set sail. Like, they're away from the dock. She cannot get back on land. Honestly, jump and swim. I don't know. Valid. But she sees, like, an emergency box and tries to, like, shoot shoot the flare gun. But um, Ben guns it and she loses the flare gun into the water. Ray is... Um, still on he's gotten up he sees that she's riding away and sees a like lone small boat and steals it to go catch up with them mm-hmm. um, so this is another really good chase scene um julie is just running and gets herself downstairs and she's being chased and this scene really scared me as a kid too um there's so it's like a fishing boat, and I don't know any of the terminology either, so make fun of both of us, but what I feel like this little hallway that's downstairs, I feel like like the little like push-pull-up doors that are on either side of like the little aisle are like, that's where like all your fish and stuff is supposed to go, because like the right. one of them that Julie opens and like gets in has a ton of ice, so I assume the purpose of that is fish go there right and then they bring it back to the shore and all that other stuff um so i looked up a diagram she goes into the engine room first because that's kind of what it looks like is the engine room and then the ice room is called the fish hold that's what i said (laughs) but i'm I'm just helping okay (laughs) i'm like i think the fish go there that makes sense to me (laughs) It does. You don't want your fish to go bad or hot. Yeah. For this whole day, 
since it's July 4th. Oh, I've, we mentioned that, you know, when Barry, Helen, and Julie and Ray are all together, they're saying that today is July 4th. It's his day to where they think that the fisherman is going to really, really, really be after them. So this whole day, Julie has been wearing the same outfit, like a little light blue cardigan thing, like over a spaghetti strap, like tank top thing. So because it's a late 90s horror movie, she's got to take off her cardigan and show off her boobs <laughs> a little bit more. So she uses the cardigan to kind of like jimmy the handle of the fish hole door and like block herself in. And then she sees that there's like a little... I wouldn't call it an exit, but it's another access point to get out. Yeah. And as she's kind of swimming through the ice, she finds um, Helen and Barry's bodies and gives her good little scream, which alerts Ben to where she is. Um, and Ray has climbed up on the boat. They're kind of fighting. But when he when Ben hears Julie scream, he knocks Ray out again yeah and goes to this like literally just this part i remember it so vividly and it scares the shit out of me so ben has figured out like where julie is downstairs and where she must be heading to and julie like, climbs out of the ice there's like a little tiny portal and then there's a little ladder that would take you up to the top deck and Ben Willis just opens up the little thing and Julie's down there and she gives such a good scream. I love it. Yeah, I always got, I was so annoyed when the first time, like when Ray gets knocked off the boat, like it's because she distracts him from fighting. And I'm like, girl, let him fight. Okay. Well, she doesn't even know he's there. Well, I guess that's fair. That's I the think first she time went to run and hide. <clears throat> yeah, but. When Julie screams, Ray is back on the boat, hits Ben, knocks him down, and then gets Julie up there. But, it, like, double tap. Like, if you're gonna, if somebody's trying to murder you, and you knock them down, double tap, kill them, or restrain them somehow if you don't want to murder somebody. And then help your ex-girlfriend out of the hole of the ship. So they're like, oh my God, we're alive. And then Ben uh, wakes up and says, when you leave a man for dead, make sure he's really dead. And he goes to like raise his hook, but it gets caught in some ropes. And thankfully, Ray is a fisherman, hits a lever and pulls Ben into the sky, ripping off his hand with the hook still in grip yeah and hangs like, him, like upside down thing yeah slices it off yeah clean cut and then he falls into the ocean uh goodbye 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 so the next scene we all the police are on the boat i'm assuming because there are dead bodies and probably evidence on that boat but ray and julie are like cuddling up against each other They've been through some more traumatic stuff. And one of the police officer asks, you know, why would he, like, why would he, this guy want to kill you? They go, I don't know, girl. You don't quit lying. But, well, I mean, at that point. Yeah. And 
they're like, well, we actually never killed anybody. And I'm like, yeah, so this guilt, all this full year was for nothing. And now they can just pick up where they left off with their relationship. And Julie's like, I understand your pain. Oh, God. Yeah. The, the Julie Ray deal. But yeah. it was in the script. They get back together. And then we go to one year later. And Julie is in, like, her little dorm shower room thing. Her hair is a little bit shorter. It's got some shine to it. Looks like she's been in the sun. She's got a little bit of color. And she's on the phone flirting with her boyfriend. And uh, then some other girl comes and gets her after Julie started the shower to get all the steam going. You look like you have something to say. Yeah, which bold of her to take that phone that close to a shower none of that stuff was waterproof or even steam proof in 1997 correct so that's all i needed to say about that <laughs> so a girl in the locker room calls out that julie has some mail and i'm like who's bringing you mail in the bathroom but okay also and- mail is traumatizing at this point <laughs> and julie sees a nondescript little white envelope that just says julie james on it and she looks at it and she's like oh my god and she's terrified because it's the same handwriting then she ends up opening it and it's like an invite to some sorority or frat house party or whatever Mm -hmm. and then she's like okay it's fine she walks back into the shower room and now all the showers are on and it's super super steamy she kind of walks towards the center shower and on the little mirror it says i still know in that same font Uh and then we get our last jump scare of the fisherman jumping through the glass at her and then we hear julie's scream end scene or movie yeah i think that i i know what you did last summer was a is is like a horror classic it you know you said it follows the tropes of all of the classic high school friendships and interworkings and that's probably why yeah i really like it i think that for what it is it's well done i mean there's a couple offhand moments a couple things that make it seem more like a movie than you know a, a possible real life situation Right. I think that the actors, I mean, obviously have grown, gone on to do amazing things. I just really like it. I mean, that's also one of the things it's like, you know, I have a different relationship with this movie because it's the first horror movie I really got to see. It's the first R-rated movie I got to see. And it's not like it's Silence of the Lambs or anything, but <laughs> I think that is really good. I think it's a good movie that you can watch without having... To think too much which i think there are some times where you want to watch a movie and you just want to watch it for what it is and this is a good movie for that because it's very clear there's i mean there's the mystery of oh who's killing these people but in the end it spells it out for you there's really not a lot of thinking you have to do for yourself in this yeah i've seen like some critiques about like making it like the whodunit thing when the julie and them are going back and forth to missy's house and stuff like that to that it kind of drags down the action and i can see that but it's also such a simple plot that i feel Mm -hmm. like them giving that 
was to give it some more complexity. So, like, I don't fault Kevin Williamson and Jim Gillespie and all that stuff for that. I would just like to say that these people, characters, don't really think outside the box because how they don't think that the man survived potentially and is now harassing them. Like, listen, I can, when I come up with worst case scenarios you better believe that that's the one i'm coming up with as well like i think if julie hadn't found out that there was a male body that was recovered in, from a similar situation time frame that she probably yeah. like i don't know I, potentially what she would have done but right. i think her having some kind of information to be able to grasp onto just she held on to it and she spiraled and thought of it. And then I think it's, it's of course, you know, in the script, but it's also very coincidental that that person that she thought it was this whole time was related to what actually right. happened to her. So, I mean, it's like, a good little bow to put on it. Yeah. She was, she was getting there. Like she was pretty close, but she didn't quite get all the way there. I think it kind of would be interesting for what we believe is a small town and if you know David Egan went to that high school and you know stuff like that because I think Julie says that David Egan was just like a few years older than them and Helen Mm -hmm. says that Elsa might have known him so like it's a very close-knit community I think it would be cool to consider an opportunity that like what if we saw Ben Willis like somewhere in the background or Mm -hmm. there had been like a scene at the first 4th of July party that like maybe, I don't know if he's a fisherman, like maybe he's interacting with a vendor or something like it it could have been something that seemed like it was just adjusting the setting or whatever, but then it actually ended up being that guy. I think that would be an interesting take to like see Ben Willis go to buy perfume from Helen and you know buy some fish from Ray and like go to the gym with Barry and interact with them and being like I know but you don't know that I know and just kind of like add to that level of familiarity because they had no idea who this guy was and neither did we but I do I kind of like that idea it would be something and I think that that's also it is absolutely not to say that there isn't absolutely fantastic like storytelling in years, you know, past. But I think that the way that we're saying that is how movies kind of would get made today. That there's like a humanoid aspect, right? You are killer or something like that, versus it just being like the big reveal at the end who the killer is. Yeah, because we really don't get uh, a perspective on Ben Willis other than. His daughter died, he got the revenge, and now he's getting revenge again on these kids. Which, the fact that he's getting revenge on these kids, because they're 18, 19 years old, you know, how old was his daughter? But he's out here murdering, basically, children who are not even of age at this point to, like, drink. So it it shows that he lacks the empathy, and he only cares about it. So yeah, Ben Willis is probably a narcissist in my book. (laughs) <laughs> well uh not that i'm a his character on cinema therapy that youtube channel <laughs> yeah i i like this movie it did really well it 
there's a, a sequel with Brandy and Jack Black in it, and I love it. It's fun. I think that it's really good. I don't know if you know this, but there is a new, I know you did last summer movie, um, either in production or like in the process with Freddie Prince Jr. and Jennifer Love Hewitt. So that is, I know what you did last summer with your favorite horror podcast, Booze and Boobs. So let us know what you guys think. If you had any comments, reactions, thoughts, we'd love to hear it. And we are looking forward to the next one. Something happens in a poltergeist town. (laughs) Yes. There you go. We will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you guys for listening. We hope that you enjoyed our episode and we look forward to hearing from you. Find us on Twitter or Instagram to request a movie or even just to discuss your thoughts at booze and boobs or send us an email boozeandboobs at gmail.com. Yeah, and we're working on turning this into a thing. So if you can please follow us on Patreon, our account there is booze and boobs also. And what are some of the benefits to joining our Patreon? Oh, Katrina, I am so glad that you asked. As a patron, you will get early release episodes, bloopers, uh, mini episodes where we showcase uh, scenes from the movies that we're talking about or just conversations that we're having that we had to cut from our recording. All that and more. And they're fun tiers. You can be an A cup, a C cup, or you can join the Triple D Plus group like us. We truly appreciate your support and we look forward to growing our following to create more content for listeners like you. So we'll see you next time or else. Yeah, let's end it with a threat.